Welcome to the Performance Health Podcast. My name is Tim Karen. Today we have Charlie Weingroff on to talk about centration. Centration is a topic that I actually learned directly from Charlie through a lot of his courses and seminars. And I want to talk to him about what that actually meant and how that actually impacts movement. There's a lot of other really great points to talk about human movement that we've already talked about between flexibility, mobility, or passive and active range, control, having the ability to demonstrate force at certain lengths. Then we move into this next concept of integrating those capabilities within a three-dimensional world on top of it, trying to learn how to locomote from a baby all the way to a fully functioning adult. There's a lot of concepts to dive into in Centration and Charlie really nailed it. This is a really great episode. I think you guys are going to enjoy this one a lot because Charlie was really candid and did a really good job of talking about this, not only in a very technical manner, but a very practical manner. So this was fun. If you want to learn more about Centration, as well as dive into over 50 modules, head over to phpodcast.com, access the curriculum, get access to not only those 50 modules, but a forum, debates, lectures, and then various web shows that we do throughout the course of the year, all for you as a member of phpodcast.com. I hope you guys enjoy. Please check out phpodcast.com to learn more. All right, everybody, we got Charlie on today. Charlie, thank you for taking the time. Uh, do you want to give any kind of breakdown? If you don't know Charlie by this point, I feel like you've been under a rock. But if you want to kind of describe yourself and what you've been doing, what you got going on. I don't think anybody lives under a rock. If you don't know me, that, that's totally cool. There's a good chance I don't know you either. So we'll call it a draw. <laughs> no matter what I say, it's it's just conversation. And, and what we were just talking about off air, man, like, you would just talk about like, how how we can have a good conversation and hopefully that conversation uh, motivates or stimulates somebody to, to do some good things to help other people. Uh, the stuff we were talking about, as I, you could tell in my voice, it was really disappointing um, that, that other people don't always seem to share that. Um, this is not, it's not about me. It's about the people that perhaps are listening and, and they can help other people. Absolutely. So conversation today, I want to center it on, ironically, pun intended, centration, which you brought up in your training as rehab course and then several other things, several other times. Why don't you give a background on where you were exposed to centration or where you kind of came across that and then maybe potentially give a full circle view of where you're at with it today. So uh, in, the, in, the, in how I think you're referencing this, uh, Tim, the first time that, that centration, not, not the definition, but the word uh, was, was through DNS, dynamic neuromuscular stabilization. Uh, so. That, that's where the definition was provided as equal co-contraction of agonists and antagonists around the joint. And that, that definition unto itself maybe doesn't sound like something absolutely obligatory, but what happens is when you have that equal co-contraction of agonists and antagonists, there is a point in which the joint and all joints rotate whether they rotate in different planes or so we're going to like, even if I'm, if I'm flexing, I'm still rotating about an axis within a plane. And so when we say rotation and we're not just talking about transverse plane movement, but when any structure rotates on another structure, there is a range of positions, or sometimes that means one position, but not another, or a, a, a range of positions in which there's the, the, the point of the, the anatomy provides a very, very even level of stabilization, which then allows the joint to rotate more. Now, that, that actually, when you start to dig in, the, the true answer is in the first six chapters of Shirley Sarman's first book. The first six chapters of that first book are so seminal. Um, and to many people and other methodologies, whether they know it or not, because it's all grounded in physics and biology. And she called it something that is known in the literature of physics, not necessarily human performance, biomechanics, but the more global term that less people can argue with is called path of instantaneous center of rotation, PICR where the example for that is when the, the wheel well 
is put onto the axle of your car, there is a range in which it spins as easily so that when you hit the engine and the car's gravity is forced to spin, there's as little resistance as possible around the wheel of the car so that you get the best gas mileage, meaning your engine has to do as little work as possible to achieve the desired rotation of the wheel, AKA speed. So centration and path of instantaneous center of rotation, they mean the same thing. So centration is probably less of a documented word in, the, in a physics book. So it may warrant some type of cynicism as to, well, that's not a thing because it's just a word that represents something. But the definition is, is really quite the same as, as path of instantaneous center of rotation, which is a very, very real, very, very tangible law of physics when something is rotating on another thing. And that's what a joint is. Like my humerus is rotating on my scapula. So there's a point where if, my, if the, the, the resting tensions or how I choose to activate my muscles around, because there's a strategy to, to how we move. And that strategy may not be right or wrong for different reasons, but there is a, a resting tension. There's your mobility and your strategy. There's your stability that can be communicated as desirable or less desirable if it's in one place that has the easiest amount of rotation so that I don't have to work as hard and I don't have to use my deltoids, for instance, as much so that I can conserve energy, I can then be able to move in a freer fashion as long as the joint is centrated, aka it remains within this ideal range where there's equal co-contractions of agonists and antagonists. So, you know, DNS would often talk about that because the assertion, and now, now it's more of Sometimes when, when different models, in my opinion, <laughs> that we, when they have an opinion, it's presented as the reason, when in fact, it's really just one of many reasons. And there's a lot of uh, potential reasons, but when you take a commercial course or a seminar series that is about things that somebody is very, very passionate about, if it's not inclusive, it's very fair to kind of look at what they're saying and be like, well, that's not really the only part of the story, but in their world it is because that's what they're selling you. Like to sell someone else's reason may not make this business model make the most sense. Um, you know, whereas you own, you own some very, very successful gyms and you have a methodology that's very, very successful. Otherwise you wouldn't have successful gyms. There are other ways to train other than your, the way you train. That doesn't mean yours is right and theirs is wrong. It just means there's other ways and you, you will prop because of who you are, you are sensible and reasonable and be like, no, no, that's a great way to train. That's just not how we do it here. This is how we believe. But I think you can get there with the same way. No one says that in, in different courses. So DNS explains it in a very, very particular way as it relates to the joint positions that are significant to how uh, a developing infant uh, develops and becomes vertical and learns to crawl and roll and walk, et cetera, et cetera. Now that's just one potential story that supports it because the reality is by the definition and illustration of what a centrated joint is, if baby doesn't have that joint centration, then they don't develop. So that's the, the, the foundation of these beliefs. Now that's very hard to prove. Uh, however, it's it's certainly reasonable. So that's why if that storyline doesn't work, then you go back to the wheel on the car and, and Shirley Sarman and, and her book, which is physics. Like physics is not deniable. Like we don't have an opportunity to, to discuss the viability of physics until you know, there's significant, you know, very, very powerful research. Uh, that says, no, we were, we were wrong, that, that it's not 9.8 meters per second squared. But until that happens, physics is, is, is what it is. And that, that, that leads to the, the least amount of discord or stupid discussion on what this means and what this doesn't mean. Because at the end of the day, if your joint is not centrated, just like if the wheel wasn't on in this particular way, the car still works. 
And now if you have a great deal on gas and you have more gas mileage, there's a way to mitigate that. Like it, it's, it's just what is the most efficient way for a joint to move? And, and again, the, the relation to the human body is equal co-contraction of agonists and antagonists. And when you have that, you'll, you will have to put as little amount of force to achieve the same function. Doesn't mean you have no force. It just means that's the that's the most efficient place for the this joint to function. Yeah, and one of the metaphors I was thinking about, which to your point of like someone comes to our gym and they say, "Oh wow, like this is a great way to train." The first thing we tell them it's like going to Chick Fil A. Like you know, people still make burgers in the world; they just happen to make really good chicken sandwiches. We make really good strength training programs. However, where we come up short is from a cardiovascular standpoint. You should just be doing some zone two stuff because at a certain point. We're going to run run short in terms of doing some cardiovascular stuff, some mindfulness, wellness, whatever other thing that kind of balances the scales. Doesn't mean because we don't do it at a high level or frequency that probably is going to be a conduit conduit to overall health. That's not important. You know, just being upfront on that, really. But you're right. Like courses really struggle to to say this is a part of the equation and not the entire absolute. It's 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 a strategy and it's a business strategy. And I think in other worlds. At least for me as a consumer, it makes a little bit more sense. Even DNS that I brought up, I still would want people to have a filter. And, and like if you're closely aligned with me and I recommend that course, I would typically say, no, you, we have to come back and talk about it later because the, the courses that seem to be the most popular right now are all rehab-based. They're all, they're all based in rehab. They're not based in training. Mm -hmm. uh, they're not based in physiological training. They're not based in what you just talked about, zone two, uh, or lifting heavy things. They're based on how do you not get injured? Or if you are injured, what do you do about it? That, that's what it seems to be the most popular stuff right now and for a, a long period of time. And there's reasons for that that may be more my opinion. But more importantly, th there's a business strategy that, that says, not only this is what I do, but... Not, and not, nothing else exists because then you'll continue to consume me because if I can convince you that everybody else is awful and horrible and wrong and all you need is my stuff, you'll spend all your money with me. And from a business standpoint, that's probably a pretty good strategy. Yeah. Uh, but I think when it comes to human performance, um, it, it's, it's, there, there's, a, there's something that's, it's okay. Like I can, I can speak on it in two ways. Like I'm talking out of the side of my mouth. From a business aspect, I understand what they're doing and I have no choice to respect it because I'm a business person. Except that's not the only way to do business. And when, there, when it's about humans, human performance, and it's about working with people, uh, I think that, that, that having more global view and consuming all these isolated, exclusive uh, models, but then putting them together is a much better way to help people. And now, when, when someone is closely aligned with me, whether they work with me personally, there might be some things that I'm very, very against, meaning you're not doing this. If you, but if, you, if, if you're just somebody who's listening to podcasts, I want you to do everything and I want you to take everything from all these different worlds then mash it all up and put it into your own world. But, but if you work with me, then you don't get to mash up everything because there's, this is now about business. So it's, 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 it's probably a factor that not everybody always talks about because not everybody's a business person. Yeah. I mean, just being an informed consumer is probably underrated. Well, I think, I think that that helps understand, well, why do different models, you know, discuss things in this entirely exclusive fashion, uh, which is, you know, by definition, exclusive means to exclude. So, I mean, that would be like, all I need to do is consume you. Like you get every one of my dollars and that's just stupid. Like, like when you think about it like that, they really, I mean, your, your shit does everything Like you, you know, everything. And, and, and I don't need to go anywhere else that, that when you think about that, Oh man, you're right. Yeah. Well, that's okay. I don't have to be right. I'm, I'm giving you why something like centration can be a challenging concept from my, from my point of view, my uh, perspective, I didn't know it when I read it as from Sarman years before I took the first DNS course, but I think the word centration, it doesn't, it's a word. It's in the English language. It doesn't belong to DNS, but I think that's where a lot of people have heard that word. Like there's other models that were use the word neutralization. Um, and it, it, it's probably identical, like the definition. So you, 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 you can't argue with PICR. That's not like, you don't get to argue physics. Like, no, like, 
Centration is pathogenicity instead of rotation. If you have a problem with centration, that's okay because it comes from this uh, neurodevelopment process that is very hard to prove. You don't get to talk about path of instantaneous rotation. That's physics, and you are not allowed to argue about physics. Like they, now, you've lost all credibility if you argue about physics. If you didn't know what the definition of centration was, or you assumed it meant something different, then admit it and be like, "Oh wow, I, I, huh, okay, yeah, I actually am on board with that. I'm not going to use that word, but I understand what you're saying and I respect your position." Said no one ever. So it's uh, that that I think that's what makes it an interesting term. So. I thought you did an amazing job off of your training as rehab, rehab as training, talking in terms of where this is a practical aspect and from the transitional patterns from a prone supine, sideline, even quadruped, but then talking about it from, hey, why, maybe you want to take a joint away and creating some sort of reaction or counteraction to taking that joint away. So like if you have a problem with wrist, or there's pain there, taking it away. Essentially, the point being, it's like play around and find some stuff where you really did an amazing job from my perspective, where it really like sunk home. It was like that aha moment was talking about it with your feet in the ground and stuff with kettlebells and stuff with like expressing force and velocity or power and really trying to control that. And the one that like was the stickiest moment. And to be honest, we as a we all watched this as a staff when I was at Army West Point and we were psychos about packing your neck. Because of you just being so adamant about it, and like, yeah, and now it's like, like the most normal. It's the most normal thing now. Like every everybody does. But it was so. It was so like. It was such an abstract thought at the time, right? Like it was like, oh my god, like Charlie's saying, pack your neck, keep your head in line with your cervical, keep the cervical spine under control while you're hinging or squatting. And at the time, it was like a very like controversial thing. Like look up, always have this like eye up position, and then showing all these other examples of like where that actually really doesn't hold up or hold weight. Like you know, person diving off the diving board. Like if they looked up, they wouldn't have as much propulsion off the board or all these other things. But I want to talk about that with you right now because you have a really strong background in strength conditioning and and powerlifting and kettlebell work. Where I think you probably learned firsthand of like. If I don't have a better strategy to control certain joints or centrate those joints or control rotation at those joints, I'm going to lose power or force. Like, was that that moment where it really sat in for you, or was there another kind of like transitional moment for you personally? Well, for well, look, the the message is not is not linear because like people that contended it back, you know, almost ten years ago, if not longer, they well look at him, he does it. Like no, like nobody said your neck is going to fall off, and there's actually a very reasonable explanation as to why people do it, particularly when they're weak. Uh, you're creating stabilization through other means other than, than centration. But that being said, the, the first time that, that I actually coined that, that term was, I, I have no memory of her name, and I wouldn't tell you if I did uh, for, for uh, privacy purposes, but this was a, a young lady who was a, a Division One softball player. I don't remember what her injury was, but we were working on kettlebell deadlift. and she wasn't getting it and she wouldn't hinge back and she would always look up and, and, and I think she had pain, but then randomly it wouldn't like when we went back and put the kettlebell down and just put the stick on her back and, and, and uh, uh, did, did the three point dowel deadlift, she had no pain. So I'm like, keep your neck there. I'm going to take the stick away. Just, just stay right there. And then I said, hold your neck there like do whatever you have to do to hold it there like pull away think of like you're deadlifting with your eyes and she's like my back doesn't hurt i said what does that feel like in your neck and i put my hand on her neck because 10 12 years ago that was an okay thing to do even though this was this was somewhat of an adult i don't remember how old she was and she's like it feels like there's pressure in my neck i said that's the pressure i want in your back keep your neck there and and she's like so the word was actually pressured like like you feel pressure in the back of your neck because that's what you feel like. You feel like something's behind you. And I kept my hand on her neck. And I said, put pressure on my neck. I'm, I'm sorry, put pressure on my hand, put pressure on my hand. And, and I said, now pack, like what feel, pack it in, pack your neck in, pack it in. And it became packed neck. And uh, I think when you look at the bulk of really strong and fast people, they do that. And then by that point, it was right around the time that I got exposed to DNS. And even there, like the, the goal is to not have to, to do that, like to not have to override that position. 
you can just do it naturally. And that's what baby does. I'm like, man, like, so then, then you start to appreciate that what you do in your neck is also what you do in your spine, which is why people do it to create this compression through the spine by arching. So that's where it came from. And as a power lifter, which I was a power lifter long before I was any kind of a professional, I am comfortable saying that I didn't suck. <laughs> you know, um, there, there was a point that 800 pounds used to be a lot. And to do that at that point, lifetime clean, I, I didn't suck. <laughs> so, uh, but I never, I also never made the next commitment to go up against guys that I have so much respect for. They built their life around powerlifting. And there was a point that I, I, I did have a loose invitation to train at Westside. So I'm not some nobody that, that just happens to think that they're cool with powerlifting. But as a power lifter, you know that if any part of your body doesn't feel right, the whole lift is off. And that is another component to centration. When we talk about that joint position, if one joint position is not ideally centrated, you run the risk of being decentrated in other positions. That's the neck to the back piece. And the back is obviously a connection in a lot of ways, but fascia connects everything. So centration, if it's neurological, the fascia has to be involved. Or how is it that, you know, something does change mechanically in my upper quarter when my knee buckles in, uh, if I choose to not be centrated in my hip. So that was the link to all those things. And then you start to see that the bulk, not all, but the bulk of the strongest and fastest people on earth, this is what they do. Like, it doesn't mean a hundred out of a hundred, but like a very high amount. And of course there has since been research. Like this is like, I don't really think about it because this isn't a topic that, that actually comes up a lot. People have researched this, like, and, and I was right. Like it's, it's, it's like, it's not about me. It doesn't matter because if you look at Purposeful Primitive, which is a book written by a gentleman named Marty Gallagher, one of the power lifters that he, there's an expose on is a guy named Hugh Collins who probably lifted in like the seventies. And he has like a perfect looking uh, vertical tibia squat, a free squat, like a competition. And he's got his, per he's, like, he's clearly holding his neck in that. Like, it's not like I made this up. Yeah. It's just something that around the time that it became uh, verbal, social media was like, or, or the internet was like this explosive thing where now like there's really nothing new to talk about. So it's uh, that was something interesting. Um, and there has been research. There's a colleague, I, I forget his name. Maybe he'll watch this. Like he's in Chicago. He sends me all the research that like actually shows. But even, even Stuart McGill messaged me when, when he did one of his later uh, editions of his book. And he said that if you have a shorter neck, pack neck is better. If you have a longer neck, you have to pulse into a pack neck. I'm like, that's the same thing. Like makes sense that if you're, if you're longer, that you, you, you need this little pulse to, to gain, but it's still the same position that you end in. So if anybody has issues with pack neck, you can ask, you can ask Stuart McGill and, and a lot of other, uh, I, of course, it's not called that in the research because that's not a real term, uh, but, but a new, neutral neck is, is uh, 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 that is the centrated neck position. I had another question I wanted to get into, but this one I think is just more pertinent to what you just described, where if you look at weightlifting, snatch, clean, and jerk, and there's a handful of varieties and styles. And I, I think there's like, there's some amazing coaches have still down to some of the things that you just talked about, like the best in the world do this organically. So it really comes down to just keeping it close, make sure you pull it fast, catch it deep. The interesting thing, though, and this is something that since the advent of post-steroid era and reforming the weight classes, is this transformation off of potential for female versus male weightlifting. We haven't made much progress in male weightlifting in the last 30 years where females have just skyrocketed. They're closing that gap really fast. And Bud Chiringa, who's a very interesting guy, had a really good book called Demasculation of Sport, which is very rare, like almost like punk rock-esque, like you can only find it at certain like weightlifting conferences. But he made the assertion that the only difference between 1988 and now is the fact that females are just way more reactive and utilize more of a Fosford-like flop in terms of weightlifting. So they pull to their waist and drop under where males are still trying to pull to their highest point. And if you see some of the, the pictures, like they're trying to time the bounce or trying to time the oscillation of the bar, 
where males are going to be more force driven. And you see like, and I'm just having this image as you're describing the power lifters or every other, like yourself, like getting this packed neck where females are like trying to react and trying to organize their body based off elastic energy. Now, my question to be on this is in the terms of like trying to not use contractile force or this like overcoming type of contraction, is there a case to be made off of like when all else and shit hits the fan and you're just basically meet this like perfect intersection of threshold and body's capabilities? Do you ever find that there's a point of like ditch all things and just organically react to the situation? And that might mean like getting certain joints out of alignment and trying to find ways to overcome. Of course. Uh, uh, I think there's multiple ways to describe that with, with maybe some more simpler terms. There's a big difference between a training lift and a competitive lift and a survival mechanism. Again, as I said earlier, like nobody said that your neck was going to snap off if you look up to the ceiling. That has nothing to do with Olympic lift or powerlifting. That's just if you have a, a, a nasty looking box squat and you, you rack it, you know, you, you probably you know, improve some things and you uh, are probably paid with some other things if that's always how you lift. Obviously, if you just do it once, like not the end of the world. Uh, and then if there's no spotter nearby and you're in a half rack where there's no pins, you got to do what you got to do to get the bar off of you. So that, that, that should not be ignored. But like to do something that, that, that is obviously someone's rationale and everybody has their different standards and thresholds for when they want to exceed technical failure. I mean, now, now remember, technical failure in a competition is different. Like good form in, a, in, in, in whatever you decide to be good form is typically just one possible solution to getting three white lights in a weightlifting or a powerlifting uh, uh, event. So, but I, I don't get excited about hideous looking lifts that you clearly traded something just to get the bar up. Like that was no longer as an adaptive environment. You now spent your adaptations on executing this particular lift, but that's just part of training. Like that, that's, I mean, that doesn't offend me. It's just some, it offends me if somebody weren't, oh man, that was awesome. I'm like, yo, that lift, that lift looked like trash. I mean, it's, it's nice that you got it up, but, you know, and, and in the squat when, you know, it's harder because like, it's not like bench press, you know, like a bench press, you can keep somebody in and they can still work and get strong if you give them a good spot. That doesn't really happen in the squat and in deadlift, there is no spot. So um, when it comes to Olympic lifting, I thought you were going a different direction. Um, because, you know, correct technical form for, for a competitive Olympic lift, because you're thrown forward from the shoes, you have to throw your head up to even yourself. Mm -hmm. But then clearly on the second pole, you, you're not going to see people doing that anymore. You see them with a very, very strong packed neck. I wonder, you know, be, like if you're, if you're in Olympic lifting shoes, it's going to be very hard to keep your neck neutral. You have to admit it. Like if, if you're being thrown forward from, from your, that's what it is. Yeah. Obviously the, you can have a flat shoe that's very, very stiff, but the heel, the changes where you are in your base of support. That's a good looking first pull for a competitive Olympic lifter. Um, but then they change it very, very quickly when you get into the second pull. You don't see too many people you know, doing that because that is the best way to put as many wheels on the bar. If we're gonna use Olympic lifting in a training environment where I actually don't care how much weight is on the bar and we're looking for a, a, a purely adapt adaptive environment we're going to coach it that way i don't care if you don't lift as much weight like and that's my belief as a coach if, if and, and and we've now explained why i believe what i believe i don't get mad at you like if you do it some different way like that's different than, than what we were talking offline i don't care like i'm like oh okay cool like yeah let's, let's, how about them cowboys you know like that's uh it's a, it's a shame but uh I thought that was where you were going, but that's a good example of you have to do that in order to win uh, an Olympic lifting meet. And you're probably paying a little bit, but the, 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 the mechanics of how you go up and down when you have a good pair of Olympic lifting shoes, which I have in my closet right there, is, is a very real thing. And it's just, you're going to put way more force into your knees and less into your hips. So that, because that's what Olympic lifting is. If you want to swap, hip dominant, and you put a lifted lifting shoes, you'll understand what I mean. <laughs> you, you change the centration of your ankle, so you can't do something with your hip. That's fine. Like that is because you will never, 
just be able to carriage the bar in this very, very competitive fashion. And there's nothing wrong with that. Again, if somebody says I'm full of shit, then again, that's a, whatever. Like it's, it's okay. Like it's, we're just talking. <laughs> no, that's a, so that's, a, that's the next point I wanted to talk about. Cause the elephant in the room off of Bud's assertion was it's all predicated off Chinese national weightlifting team, which to be honest is attrition based. It hundred percent is those who survive will be champions. We don't have that luxury in the commercial fitness space, right? Like, or worth million dollar athletes. Like we can't get them from eight years old and then just who could ever survive that much punishment would be a world champion. We don't have that luxury, either a commercial business model or working in the team setting because we usually get them to a point where don't fuck it up. Now on that note though, is all the way from start to finish, what are the filters that you can apply so I can get to the redundancy of training to actually create some sort of adaptation? And then you start to figure out strategies really quickly that mitigate risk or increase performance. And that's where it really clicked for me with you was this idea of if I was going to ask this person to do thousands of deadlifts or RDLs or whatever other thing in that hip pinch position, and I can get a little bit more force a little bit safer position is not compromising on other segments like their spine. Why wouldn't I take that approach? So that was, I started looking at it. It's a math equation. If I only have a certain amount of, and, and guys like even um, Buddy Moore has talked about like, and I think it was kind of an adaptation from Malcolm Gladwell's like outliers and 10,000 hour rule, but like we only have a certain amount of lifts, a finite amount of things that we can do at a certain amount of load without breaking down or, reaching a threshold and finding a strategy that's just flat out shitty. That's going to cause a lot of risk reward that we don't want. How do I mitigate that and get in the front end? So that's where I sort of look at like progressions of like, all right, if I was going to take, if I wanted to get them to be able to RDL or snatch or clean and jerk at a high level with really heavy loads or a lot of volume or a lot of time under tension, what positions do I need the other segments of D and how do I reverse engineer that? And where I'm going to go with this next, one of the things that you talked about, and this is, I guess, a principle with a lot of movement practitioners, like all the way from Philip Beach to DNS to even like Pavel and Kettlebell stuff and like taking some joints away and looking at it from let's create a bipedal to a quadruped or a half kneeling and tall kneeling position to see what happens and see what the reflexive outcome is from that. I want to talk about that where we start and you did it with your example of the softball players of like, let's start to take some things away and see if I can fix this in a different environment in terms of centration and looking at from a different position, because the rules changes when we're quadruped versus bipedal. You know, what is your thought process on when to kind of go to that strategy, like bipedal or single leg stance isn't working. I need to pivot. So regardless of where your starting point is, because everybody's different, like in a perfect world, you would pick the correct entry point that's the most progressive to your training program. If you don't know what your training program is, the whole the whole idea is, is mopped on the floor. But let's say you, you, you're, you're struggling with a vertical position, and that's just whatever. You really don't know why. Uh, so if you then – you just take the same principles of a great movement evaluation and apply it to your you know, individual environment. So if it's a squat – that means the spine is is standing, okay? But then you can do a squat on your knees. You just do a like a low 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 kneeling to tall kneeling. Hmm, that looks awesome. Like and look, you know that full well. There's you know you put a heavy bar, you know, a mildly heavy bar on your back, and you kip up. You know, in that explosive. I don't even know what the, the word is, but it's a it's a brilliant, you know, power training, you know, dynamic effort type of thing. Did that look good? Well. You, you can suggest that some interplay of the knee, the ankle, the midfoot, the toes had something to do with that squat. I don't know what that is yet, but you can now load your pattern you know, in a very, very effective fashion because now the spine is stacked. It's not standing anymore. Then if that didn't work, in theory, you can go to the spine being suspended. So now you go to quadruped. And is there a way to train the squat pattern, well, you're gonna to have to rig it. You'll probably never really be as developmental as you can while you're stacked or standing. So maybe you put a band around your hips and it goes this way, and then you sit back you know, into the squat, or you can put the band the other way, depending how you wanna train the eccentric or the concentric pattern. If that doesn't look good, then you go on your back and then pull your hips, and now your, 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 your spine is supported. So if I go the opposite direction, spine supported, do you dominate? 
Spine suspended, do you dominate? Spine stacked, do you dominate? Spine standing, that's where most of your fitness, not all, not all, but most of your fitness is going to happen in the standing position. Obviously, there's value in other things. You, you can do that. Additionally, you can change the stabilization demands. So sometimes, you know, if you put a rubber band around somebody's knees and force them to push out because they feel wrong when their knees come in, all of a sudden their squat looks perfect. So you didn't have to regress to a stack position. You just change the stabilization demands. So eliminating joints, changing stabilization demands are options. You know, and there's a model called the four by four matrix that I think we talked about many years ago. And it's and um, whether Greg Cook made it up or Greg Rose, I'm not sure. I think it's Greg Rose because that's how his brain thinks. Everything is very compartmentalized and categorical. When you bring up people like Gladwell and others, like the most intelligent people on earth, they make categories of things. They make things as simple as possible, but no simpler. That's an Einstein quote. Greg Rose is one of those people. And you know, the four by four matrix gives you a way for you and I to communicate as to what was the neurodevelopmental position and then what was the motor skill environment that allowed the person to adapt and then move on, adapt and then move on, adapt and then move on until you get back to your terminal fitness choice. So, you know, the, the position of changing positions, you know, the, the concept of changing positions, I'm sorry, is, uh, is on the floor to quadruped to kneeling, sitting. And then within each of those, there's all sorts of variations that allow you to be, you know, you can do this model, you can do this model, but now you can, in your mind, because uh, if you did the evaluation correctly, where they kind of started to no longer show competency, that's their entry point. That's where you have to get them to be better at. So, you know, that, that's how you look at it. So you can start at the finish and then scale backwards. That's a very long process. If you actually did a good evaluation, you wouldn't have to, you know, you wouldn't, you wouldn't have failed you know, because you were, you, you wouldn't have known uh, or had a strong opinion, a strong position that if we did go there, we're not gonna we're not gonna be very successful. The stabilization thing, as you're looking through, and one of the things I talk about with my staff is figure out what you control. Right? We we don't know why that sucks, and why that movement pattern is what we want. We we know what we want it to look like, but we don't know why it's not going good. Figure out what you can control, and if it looks better in a tall kneeling position, that's where we're at today. The thing I want to go into, though, is it goes into a whole other continuum here, right? Where let's say the goal is body comp or creating some sort of architectural change of that muscle, right? Whether it's rehab or bodybuilding. In a very stationary, stable environment, I find a lot of just, for lack of a better term, aberrant motion of like elbows going to wonky position when we start to do like a, a chest press on the machine, right? You start seeing like some wavy arms, and I can't help but think about of like corkscrewing into the ground when you're doing a push up or you're doing a swing. And like if I could just teach that person how to neutralize or center that joint and create some sort of adaptation in that tissue that we're going to be a lot better from. In terms of like, and I know you probably come across a handful of just all walks of life from elite level athletes to gen pop that just want to look better and you leverage some of these tools. Are you looking at that and saying, OK, now I've gone all the way up. Roses four by four, very stable, but very, very specific area. And what are some of the things that you're thinking about of like, I don't have anywhere else to go from stability standpoint. Now I need to kind of reverse engineer this. Is it load? Is it the variables associating to kind of get them more what you want? How are you adjusting people who aren't controlling that? Well, if, if somebody can do something body weight, then the next step is to, you know, make it harder in some way. Uh, if that's if that's part of the goals of the training program. So I think it's also important to remember that unless someone's an athlete, the exercises don't matter. And there's certainly a good reason to discuss, even if they are an athlete, you know, like at some point, the exercises don't matter. But I, I mean, that's more philosophy. And does this activity translate to this goal? So if I just want to look good, I don't, there, there's no exercise that's obligatory. You may have an opinion as a coach that we find success when people do this. Okay, well, then you got to run the model. But if nobody can do it, like it doesn't matter. But at the end of the day, it's completely irrelevant. They're just vehicles to create change inside the body. I don't need to replicate this other movement 
that this lift or this activity has is a component of. So I don't need to do any of those things. I guess that's an opinion, but I, I don't know how to wrangle a discussion on that. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, so you could say like, well, we don't squat anybody. Well, do you reach your goals? Well, usually it's the person that decides what the goals are because that's how this works. Like, I don't get to decide your goals. Like, you, you can choose what I say, but I don't make you do that. And I think that's, that's just a function of how, how we commune and how we communicate. But I think sometimes making something harder is the right way to do it. So I'll, I'll take your example, which I, I, I actually would not find to be common, but I'll run with what you said that if somebody has wonky shoulder position um, while they're doing a chest press, um, usually when the spine is supported and there's only one joint, usually they can, you know, but maybe the, maybe you know, they were too short or too tall for uh, whatever the reason, it's not common in my mind. You know, so maybe they're just so freaking weak that they can't, now you would have already had the opinion of, can their joint get into the right position to absorb and adapt to stress? I'm assuming the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. So it's a stabilization issue. So I'm assuming that person is so freaking weak that you might have to put them on their knees to do a modified push-up, And as long as they understand to keep their spine tall and not let their belt drag on the ground, they're going to keep their arms in that centrated position. Or maybe you just needed to coach them up and be like, like you're going to punch somebody. Well, if they don't know what it means to punch somebody, they're not going to be able to stay in that position because it has no reference as an analogy. So whether it's the environment that coaches them to do the right thing or your tact or your words or your tactile, like I put my hand on that girl's neck, but, but you have to have the, you, you should have already have done something to feel that, okay, they can do this. And again, that's changing positions, eliminating joints, changing stabilization demands, and in a rehab setting, active versus passive. So if I can move you, but you can't do it, then you can coach them up. Now, Sometimes people can't do something because they're so stiff or their joints are, are like literally fibrotic. Like you cannot do this. And maybe sometimes it means you cannot do this right now. Uh, whether, you know, you have to run mobility drills, which, you know, will allow you to have the hardware to do the exercise that you think is important. I think the big piece here, Tim, is very simple. Other people get worked up because... They don't find that they need those exercises, so they just do different ones. People get worked up because their definition of good form is not the same as somebody else's. Yo, do your thing, man. Like, yes, there are people that I'm really, really good friends with that train with form that I don't think is good form. They're not, that doesn't make them a bad person. So, you know, that I think if we got, if we got away from that, then, then that might make this conversation a little more moot. Like, it doesn't matter. Like, then do, do what you do. But, but it, you do have to have standards. My standard is, how do I want to coach that lift? Then the next standard is, can the joints actually do it? Yes, let's train it and be progressive. No, is it because they can never do it? That means it's a mobility drill. Let's give them a mobility stim stimulus. Is no, but they can do it sometimes? Well, then we got to give them a, a motor skill acquisition stimulus, which is very different than mobility. And, and, and if their joint hurts, that's why they can't do it because that's part of the standard that has to be pain free. Well, then we have to do pain modulation stimulus, which can mean a million different things. You know, again, I find it challenging. Maybe the words, just like centration and passive instantaneous center rotation. Again, I'm using words that are grounded in the literature and physics, not some commercial brand that I'm trying to sell you. Okay. Mobility is can your joint do this under no nervous system control? None, zero, no control. That's what mobility means because. That's what mobility, mobility is not a human performance term. Mobility is a term in physics of can, a, can something achieve a particular range of, of movement. Control is motor skill acquisition, but you have to define the skill uh, and that's a different process. But you cannot achieve motor skill acquisition for a terminal skill if your joints can't do it in the first place. So they have to be something different. You, it's very clear, like meaning, no matter what, no matter how I change positions, eliminate joints, active versus passive, and you still can't touch your toes, no matter what, and the components don't exist, no matter how we look at it, that's a mobility solution. And that is a different adaptation process than, huh, you can't touch your toes, but when I sit you down and your legs are long, you can get three inches past your toes. That's really weird. It's a motor skill acquisition. They, they can do it. 
And that's that's a very important concept, I think, to 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 answer your question of where do you land? You got to know. You got to evaluate. And that's uh, and sometimes you can evaluate backwards. That's why I ran with your situation. But at some point, if you fail, you got to figure out what's the right answer. Yeah. I, I'm not big on hunting and pecking if I don't have to. You know, it's amazing while you're describing that sample or the amount of volume you're doing or something changes that paradigm altogether where, you know, someone like Mike Boyle, his problems are different than a lot of us out there because his sample is so big, right? He's working with thousands of people every single day, where if it's just me or if I'm working with under 10 clients, you know, your sample doesn't really need or necessitate you having to have this very robust thought out process from start to finish. Could everyone across this full bandwidth and distribution do this successfully and you got to go from that continuum of stabilization mobility and then moving down the rung of like everyone needs to have this first and then we kind of move into the next level of overloading it or making it more complex but there's so many questions that need to be answered about someone's training philosophy like what are you trying to accomplish then what exercises or what environments are you going to use to accomplish that but your definition of the most efficient way like just because I don't think it's efficient, I might be right. I might not be right. It doesn't matter. Like, but people don't pick that for themselves. They they don't they don't even think of it in that in that type of systematic valuation of what they're doing. Because again, like what you say with my one of my older brothers, uh, Mike Boyle, who no one knows me without him, and that's important for me to say. Is uh, I think everybody knows. Like, we don't train people the exact same way. I train a lot of people the exact same way he does because he's better at it than me. Like he, he, he's done it for 30 years, 40 years. And why would I do it a different way? Like, why wouldn't I just do it his way? You know, because he's, he has more repetitions of, of doing it than me. But in other people, I told him point blank. Yeah, like I would have done that differently. And then we talk and it doesn't. And if he doesn't do it my way, it doesn't matter. But, you know, obviously with that relationship, there's a lot of things over the years that have in my, my influence in that model. But remember, the people that walk in his door are different than people that walk in your door and my door. And we're all different people. Like, it's OK. Now, if we're not using the laws of biology and physics, then you're sitting at the kitty table. And the people that are not using the laws of biology and physics, they don't think they are at the kitty table. They, they think and, and if, if it's because they work with super high level athletes. Uh, or there's a sucker born every minute, meaning that they never talk about their pain points. They only talk about their successes. You know, that, that's where it's hard to, to filter through these messages. But why are you training for somebody? What is it that you are after? Because if you're training for connective tissue strength, like a gymnast, versus, you know, a, a ridiculous, unfathomable high level of power, uh, like an offensive lineman, those are two completely different training programs. And training for for tendon stiffness, which is connective tissue, training for rate of force development, that's different than training only for connective tissue, where you're you, you don't have to be very strong in your activity. You just can't break like a like a, a gymnast uh, or a fighter of some type. So man, there's so many different ways to train, and uh, no, none of them are wrong. It's just that I I think it's wrong to say, no, nah, that's not how you're supposed to do it. Really, like it's biology and physics. Now now you have good, better, and best. Mm-hmm. This is honestly the I can tell where you're at personally in terms of this is the common question I get. And it's just all right, like the reality is, is I need to rely on what's absolute and true. And then after that, it's kind of all context and it depends, right? Like where it goes into a bunch of different directions. But we know that this is true. You know, if I drop a tennis ball, it's gonna fall to the ground. So we cannot we can establish that as a start point. And then from there, we go into, like, what is the situation? What's the context? What's the task? What's the goal? And build out whatever training program necessitates that. Remember, though, I believe what I believe. And you want me to put on a headband and and, and uh, maybe maybe if there was something else in here instead of water and I started to run my mouth a little bit, like, I still believe what I believe. But that's not the right way to communicate when other people are listening and and I found that I think what you're recognizing as someone that has known me for a very, very long time, if, if somebody's listening to this for the first time, this that's not the voice I want to use. And I and I made a lot of mistakes when I was coming up. And maybe because of some of the intangibles and, and my ability to communicate, maybe I got away with it more than I should. And I and I and I but I wish I didn't do it. I, I probably uh, 
would have been uh, a little bit better off now. So I'm th thankful that you recognize that, I think. <laughs> well, I mean, honestly, too, like at a certain point, like you got my attention and I'm better for it. So I really appreciate you, whatever way it came off. And honestly, I, I think you're kind of being harsh on yourself, to be completely frank. I, it was a lot of really great nuance and a lot of great things that I made me think a lot and appreciate. Holy crap, I don't know a whole lot about this. And I'm appreciative of you exposed me to that. So, man, I just honestly, I just, Thank you for the time, man. This is unbelievable. This is exactly, hopefully, what we were looking for. Um, so a lot of questions. Any interest in anyone trying to find you or you kind of want to stay off the beaten path or you know, where would you want to go from this? Oh, no, man. It, internet and social media is my store. This is how uh, charlieweingroff.com, where we have online consults. You have T equals R plus. So some of the, the video products, that's what they are now. Back when we came up, it was DVDs. You know, everything is on the website. Everything is digital. And there's some other things that, you know, just, they're just brain dumps there. I think there's like nine different, you know, and nothing, uh, no, nothing is short. Like everything is, is very substantive. My social media is Charlie Weingroff on Instagram, Wagon 75 on Twitter. And I'd like to think that, you know, I have decent things to say. And if not, that's cool too, because I think you also know that a lot of my social media is, is more me as a person, uh, AKA Disney, Transformers, Pokemon, uh, and, 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 and dinosaurs. So all that stuff is what brought me to the dance. Many, many years ago, Tom Plummer said, if somebody looks up on your social media and sees a picture of you and Optimus Prime, you really think they're going to give you $500 an hour? And I'm like, seems to be working out. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. And challenge accepted, Tom. Here we go. <laughs> well, honestly, man, thank you so much. I know you got to, you got to dip here, but I, I just appreciate the hell out of you taking the time, man.